verses 8 through 11 of Revelation chapter 2. Let me give you a little bit of the context. Uh, this book was written in the late 1st century A.D., probably the last book of the Bible that was written. It was written by the Apostle John, who was in exile on the island of Patmos, and he had been sent into exile as an enemy of the Roman Empire because he had been preaching that Christ is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. And the Christian church at this point is a persecuted minority on the edge of extinction. They risk being just put out of existence. And Jesus comes to John and gives him a vision of the unseen realities that exist in heaven. And he gives, Jesus gives John this message to give to the church, to the people of God. And before I read this, I just want to remind you of the power that is here in what we are reading. If you will recall that when this word was given, the Christian church was on the edge of extinction. And then Jesus gives John these words. And what happens is, far from the church just barely surviving, the Christian church receives these words and it begins to thrive. And it begins to grow. And within a few hundred years, instead of the Roman Empire crushing the Christian church, Christianity takes over the Roman Empire. That's the power that these words and these images have. They have power to change people. They have power to change societies and empires. So keep that in mind as we come to God's word, to keep that historical and empirical example of what these words have done. And let's come prayerfully asking God to, to change us with these words, to change our culture, to change our society as he has used these words to do so many times before. Hear now God's word, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear now the words of the risen Christ. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have given it and that you have preserved it to this day. And surely one of the reasons you have preserved your word is to strengthen your people and to strengthen your church that we might embrace these words and endure during difficult times. That as we hear and believe these words more and more, we might be used by you to bring more people into the light of your glorious kingdom. Please use these words in our day as you have used them in the past. And I ask that you'd be willing to do that here in this place, even now, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, to fully understand these words of Jesus, you need to understand that there was a huge competition between the city of Smyrna and the city of Ephesus going on at the time this was written. 
This church that Jesus is writing to is in the city of Smyrna. Last week, if you were with us, or you can go back and listen on the podcast or online, Jesus had spoken to the church at Ephesus. And these two cities, Ephesus and Smyrna, were in a competition with each other because they both wanted to show that they were first in their loyalty to the Roman Empire. Both cities wanted to show Rome that they were the first city in Asia. That's what they both aspired to be. And so in this competition, you may recall we said that last week that Ephesus was a great business center and cultural center and religious center, and Smyrna was not to be outdone. And so to be a great cultural center, Smyrna built a 20,000-seat amphitheater so that they could be a center of culture and be the first city in Asia. Not to be outdone, Ephesus then builds, if you were with us last week, you may recall, they built a 24,000-seat amphitheater because they want to be the first city of Asia. Smyrna had a temple dedicated to some of the Roman gods, and they said, we are the religious center. We are the first city of Rome here in Asia. Ephesus, not to be outdone, if you were with us last week, you know they built a temple to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the size of two football fields, 155-foot marble columns surrounding it. Because they want to be the first city in Asia. Not to be outdone, Smyrna builds a second temple. So they said, you have, we had the first and we've got the last temple. And yours is dedicated to a Greek god. Ours are dedicated to Roman gods. We're the first city in Asia. In this competition, perhaps the persecution of Christians, perhaps these cities are trying to outdo one another because they want to show that they are first in their loyalty to Asia. In fact, it's so acute, even to this day, you can see in museums, we got to see one a summer ago, you can see in museums the coins from the city of Smyrna had this stamped on them. First city in Asia in size and beauty. There was a competition for who was going to be first. And into this culture, competing for who would be first, Jesus speaks to his disciples, and he says, these are the words of him who is first and the one who is last. You see, Jesus is telling his disciples in Smyrna that their lives are bracketed by the first and last. They're surrounded by first and last, enveloped by, primarily determined first and foremost, not by the decisions of Caesar in Rome. That their life is determined not first and foremost by the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, but that their lives are determined first and foremost by the one who is first And the one who is last. Jesus has that same message for us. We hear that and we say, oh yes, that must have been heartwarming to those folks. This word is for us as well. As Paul prayed, I want to remind us, as we hear this as disciples of Jesus in this day, we need to hear that first and foremost, our lives are not determined by the President of the United States or whoever holds that office. Our lives are not determined first and foremost by the rise and fall of the United States of America. But our lives, their direction, what our lives are like is determined first and foremost by the one who is first, the one who is last. The one who has the first word and the one who will have the last word. Jesus said, I am the first. He's the first to speak into our lives. 
I believe it's the psalmist in Psalm 139 and verse 16 where he says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And that's because Jesus has the first word. And Jesus will be there at the end with the last word. A day is coming when he will right all wrongs and he will make all things right. Jesus will have the first word. Jesus will be there at the end with the last word. And Jesus is here in the middle of the hardship with us, with his church. That's how he can say in verse 9, do you see what he says? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Jesus says to these Christians, I know your situation. I know what it is that you're facing. I know your hardships. Think about that. Put yourself in the place of one of these first century Christians. Perhaps they've gathered together in hiding, in secret, because they've heard that John has written down this letter, that there's a word from Jesus for their church. And so they've gathered together. And when the reader finally gets to what Jesus has to say to them, Jesus says, I know your situation. What a comfort that must have been to them. Let that be a comfort to your heart as well. Jesus told his followers that the Father knows your situation so well that the very hairs on your head are numbered. That a sparrow who's worth not more than a few pennies, that a sparrow does not fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father, and you are worth far more to the Lord than a sparrow. God knows your situation. And whatever it is that you face today, Jesus knows because he's right here with us. He's in the midst of what we face, not above looking down, not on the outside looking in, Jesus lives in us by his spirit. Remember the imagery from chapter 1, that the church is the lampstand. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And the Son of Man, the vision of who Jesus is, is he walks among the lampstands. He is among his people. He is with his church. So in whatever it is that you face, know that Jesus is with you in the midst of it. So what else does Jesus say to them? This one who is all-powerful this one who is God, that's what he's saying when he says, I'm the first and the last. If you were with us in our study of Isaiah, remember God identified himself as the first and the last. So Jesus is saying, I'm God. And he says, I know your situation. So the one who's all-powerful knows that they're being persecuted. He knows that they're suffering. What else does he have to say? Before we read it, let me just ask you, what do you wish it is that Jesus would say? What would you want him to say? I'll tell you what my wish is. If your heart's anything like this is what I want Jesus to say next. I want him to say, I am the first and the last. I know your tribulation, and I will end it now. My people should not have to live such difficult lives. Amen, Jesus. Thank you, right? I want to hear Jesus say, be faithful, and I will insulate you from this sinful, broken, and messed up world. And I would say, yes, Jesus, thank you. That's not what Jesus says. Look with me at verse 10. This is what Jesus actually says. Look at what he says, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, 
And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. <laughs> what? <laughs> Jesus is saying it's going to get worse before it gets better. Jesus is not saying that, that he's going to save us from persecution. He's asking us to be faithful even to the point of death. You know, if your heart is like mine, that is not what we want to hear. And I want you to understand the human heart, that that's what we want Jesus to say. And I want you to understand that's our desire, because there are preachers today that will preach that message to you. They will preach to you that if you are faithful to Jesus, that you will have health, and that you will have wealth, and that you won't have any problems. And I want you to hear, not from me, but from God's word, that that preacher is telling you what your itching ears want to hear. And I want you to hear the word of Jesus, because that is not at all what he says in this book. In fact, if you keep reading the book of Revelation like we're going to do, his message is not that he's going to take us out of the tribulation. His message is that he wants us to be faithful and endure within the tribulation. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus not end all of our tribulation now? Isn't that the cry of our hearts? That's what we want him to say. And you need to understand that even if that's not the cry of your heart, you need to understand that there are some people in our culture now who refuse to follow Jesus right now. Because if Jesus can stop their suffering, but Jesus does not stop their suffering right now, then they don't want to have anything to do with him. So it is important for our own hearts. It's important for our witness in a culture that's asking this question. It is important that as we raise our children and we are explaining to them what life as a Christian in this world is like, that we have an answer to this question. So let's look together. Why does Jesus not stop the suffering right now? As I thought about that question this week, I, I thought to myself, well, what did these folks do to bring on this suffering? Maybe if I know what that is, I can just avoid that thing and maybe I won't have to suffer. Did they displease Jesus in some way? And if you read the text, we have to answer the question, no, not at all. Jesus does not have a rebuke for them like he did for Ephesus and like he does the other churches here in Revelation 2 and 3. Remember last week? Jesus commended some things about Ephesus, and then he says, but I have this against you, you've lost your first love. You're not doing these things out of your relationship with me, and I have that problem with you. Jesus doesn't say that he has a problem with this church. In fact, when he says, you know, you are poor, but then he says, but wait a minute, yet you are rich. He's saying, even though you don't have material things, you are rich spiritually. These are not people who are walking away from Jesus. These are people who are walking with Jesus and have a rich spiritual relationship with him because there's no word for correction for this church like we see in the other churches in Revelation. These folks in Smyrna were sold out to Jesus and to his kingdom. And the fact that they were sold out to Jesus, that's what brought on the suffering. That's why they're facing persecution, their faithfulness to Jesus, their refusal to compromise. That's what's bringing on the tribulation. Do you see that? John's warned us of that in Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to flip one page back. Look at how John opens when he introduces himself. Revelation 1 and verse 9, John says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, same word we see in Revelation 2, 
I'm your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And then he says he was on the Isle of Patmos. He's been sent there for preaching God's word. Think about those three things that John links together. I, 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 your brother John, I'm your partner in tribulation. He's saying those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we experience tribulation. I'm your partner in tribulation and in the kingdom. There's something about being in the kingdom of Jesus that makes us a partner in, with tribulation. And he's our partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. John is saying that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is a patient endurance that we must have with the tribulation that we are facing as God's kingdom comes into this world. As the kingdom breaks in, we're going to face some tribulation, and we're going to have to be people of patient endurance. Now, why would John link those things? Think about it with me. When light shines in the darkness, and that's what's going on here, right? John chapter 1, Jesus is identified as the light of the world. Matthew 5, for those who are doing a study of the Sermon on the Mount right now, remember Jesus calls his followers to be light. A city set on a hill, don't put your light under a bushel, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're called to be light bearers. That's the image here in Revelation 1, right? The, the church is illustrated as a lampstand. We hold the light up in the darkness. That's the image. So when light shines into the darkness, the darkness has two options. The first is to acknowledge what the light reveals and make changes to those things that are out of order. The second option the darkness has is to extinguish the light. Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, down around verse 19, Jesus says, this is the judgment, this is the testimony. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness. Because the light exposes the ev their evil deeds, the evilness in their heart, and so they hate the light, and they love the darkness. And what we see here is that the lampstand that is the church at Smyrna was shining brightly, and the darkness of the city could not stand it. And the church is feeling the tribulation of the darkness trying to extinguish them. Let me be very clear. Sometimes we suffer for other reasons. Sometimes we suffer because of our own poor choices, because other people sin against us. We suffer because of their poor choices. Biblically, there are a lot of reasons why we may suffer. This is not a sermon about all the biblical reasons why we suffer, so I can't chase that rabbit right now. But right here in this text, don't miss the teaching here. Because the teaching here is that sometimes making the right choices... Sometimes making godly choices, wise choices, leads to suffering. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy when he was the pastor in Ephesus? 2 Timothy chapter 3, down around verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy and he says to him, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These disciples in Smyrna were facing tribulation because they were seeking to live godly lives. 
They were suffering because they were walking with Jesus. So how can the suffering end? Follow me on this. How could the suffering end? At least a couple of options. First, they could stop walking with Jesus, right? Then the tribulation would go away. So if you're not feeling pressure, if you're not feeling discomfort as kingdoms clash, that that should be an indication, that should be a warning to us, right? Because if we're not walking with Jesus, we're not going to feel this clash of kingdoms. So they could walk away. If you're in the Hebrew study that, that one of our women's groups are doing, then remember that's what they're doing. They're experiencing tribulation, so they're turning back to Judaism. Some people are doing that. So you could turn away from Jesus. Or the other option... Jesus could crush the kingdom of darkness. Jesus could crush the kingdom of this world and extinguish the kingdom of darkness so there's no clash, there's no conflict between kingdoms and we wouldn't suffer anymore. Now you need to understand that the Bible teaches one day that will happen. One day Jesus will have his kingdom come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That there will be no more wrong. That he will crush the kingdom of darkness. That one day he will take away the kingdom of this world. But that day is not today. But that also gives us our answer to the question, why does, not, why does Jesus not end our suffering now? Why doesn't he take it away now? Because... There are others in the kingdom of darkness that Jesus wants to save. He's not ready for that kingdom to be crushed. There are people in the kingdom of this world that Jesus wants to draw out of the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his light. And those of us who follow Jesus in this world are used by Jesus to spread his light. We're the means he uses to bring people to himself. But as we clash with the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, that means that we will inevitably experience tribulation and suffering. What does that mean for us here at Redeemer Church? Well, it means this. If our church becomes a place where kingdoms clash, where the kingdom of darkness clashes with the kingdom of light, where the kingdom of this world is confronted by the kingdom of God, if this church becomes a place like that, a place where justice confronts injustice, a place where idols are torn down, a place place where human pride is confronted, if this church becomes a, a place like that, then we will experience tribulation as kingdoms clash in this place. That should just be a reality for us. We shouldn't be surprised by that. So I wonder, do you feel the clash of kingdoms? If not, then there are a couple of things going on. He keeps giving us these two options. I hate being put in a box like that, right? Well, at least these two things have to be true. If we're not feeling this clash of kingdoms, then either, number one, we're not living out the truths of the kingdom, or we're not sharing the truth of the gospel, we're not standing for those principles if we're not feeling this clash. Or number two, if we are living those things out, but we're not feeling this clash, it means that we're not involved enough in the world. When's the last time you heard a preacher say that? Y'all need to be engaged with the world more. We need to do both of those things. 
We need to be shaped by the gospel. We need to be involved in the world in a conflict with the kingdom of darkness and the kingdoms of this world. You see, the more closely we walk with Jesus, the more we talk about the gospel, the more we're going to feel this clash. And that's precisely why Jesus does not end our tribulation right now. Because Jesus uses this clash of kingdoms to advance his kingdom and to build his kingdom. That's why we continue to face suffering in this world. That's why Jesus doesn't end it right now. It's really out of his grace and his mercy and his goodness that he wants to draw more people to himself. Okay, Jesus, I see why you don't end our suffering now. I see it. But can you give us any help? I mean, that's a hard word. The only two things Jesus tells us to do in this text is don't fear, be faithful. Those are the two imperatives. Those are the two commands. Don't be afraid, be faithful. Well, Jesus, it's scary out there. It's difficult to live for you in the culture that we live in. How can we do that? Do you have anything that empowers us, that helps us to do so? And if you've been here, you know, as students of God's word, we've learned that the Bible never gives us a command without empowering us to do that command. The way we've learned to say it here is what is true drives what we do. There are truths that God gives us that helps us to do the things that he calls us to do. What are the truths here that empower us to live this way in our culture? Let me just close. I I actually see, I see more than this, but let's just do four quickly as I close because I want you to be empowered to not be afraid and to be faithful to Jesus in the culture that we live in. What does Jesus give us to do that? First, four things to remember. First, remember the reason for our suffering. Remember the reason for our suffering. If we're suffering tribulation because God is using us to advance his kingdom, then praise God. I think I can absorb the, the difficulty knowing that God is using it for great good. We don't always see it. We don't always see the fruit of it. Sometimes God allows us to. But if we remember that we are suffering, that we face tribulation because God is advancing his kingdom, that enables us to keep going when we're afraid. It enables us to be faithful to him, knowing that he is using our work to advance his kingdom. So first, remember the reason for our suffering. Second, remember that this is only a test. Remember this is only a test. Look what Jesus says there in verse 10. He says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. You see, as we walk with Jesus, the powers of this world will test us to see if they can gain ground. But I want you to know that Jesus uses those tests for our good to strengthen us and make us more dependent on him and more like him. Jesus uses this testing in order to strip away all the things that we cling to besides him. So we can sing verses like, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, that Jesus is more to us than those things. So that we can say, I've learned to be content in all situations. I have good news for you today. Good, we need some, right? 
Jesus has defeated the devil. And his attempts to test us can only fulfill the sovereign plan of God for all of history. And it helps us in the midst of tribulation to know that this is just a test. And Jesus will use it to make me more dependent on him and more like him so we don't have to fear. And we can be faithful to him even in the midst of hard times. For further reading, Romans 8 verses 28 and 29. Third thing. Remember the 10 days. Remember the 10 days. Do you see what Jesus says there? He said, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now, in Revelation, whenever you study, there's always this debate. Is this a literal 10 days? Like, it's only 10 days? Or is this just like a metaphorical thing? Is it just it's figurative language saying that it's a relatively short period of time? We're going to have that debate all through the book of Revelation, right? Listen, let me just tell you, I don't know which one it is here. <laughs> but either way, the point is that our suffering is temporary. It is confined to a certain limited amount of time. And that Jesus is in control and that he can end it and that Jesus will end it. Evil is on a leash, it can only go so far. It does have an end point, and at some point, Jesus will end it. And knowing that our suffering is temporary helps us to be faithful as we face our fears. Remember the 10 days. Fourth thing, remember the promises of future glory. Do you hear those in here? Do you hear the promises of future glory? Remember those. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Do not fear what you're about to face. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful even unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's that? Jesus is saying, look, some of you as followers in this culture are going to be killed for your faith. You will suffer physical death. But Jesus says you will not suffer the second death. You will not suffer a spiritual death. It's what Jesus said to his disciples when he says, don't fear the one that can, that can take your life. Fear the one who can kill your soul. And Jesus says those who are faithful to him will not suffer a second death. It's what Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 18 where he says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. We can endure hardship in the present when we remember that future glory. When you get to the end of this book of Revelation, Jesus promises that he'll make all things new, that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes, there'll be no more death, crying, or pain. And this promise of future glory helps us with our fears in the present and helps us to be faithful because of his great faithfulness to us. You know, I don't know how you feel hearing this message I'll tell you how I feel preaching it. I don't like talking about suffering. I don't like thinking about suffering. But as I have spent time this week mining the riches of God's word, as I've spent time here, I've come to this conclusion. I pray that we all long for this church to be a place God uses to grow his kingdom, a place where justice 
does confront injustice, a place where idols are torn down, a place where human pride is confronted. And if this church is to be that type of church, listen, there will be suffering here as kingdoms clash. And that's why Jesus does not take away our suffering right now, because he's not through with the work that he has to do. Does he sustain us in suffering? Absolutely. Does he use it for his own glory? There is no doubt. Does he use suffering for our good? Definitely. We have seen it happen in this place. But does he take it all the way right now? No, not right now. Jesus will end all suffering at some point, but right now. Right now, his presence is the reason that tribulation comes. And when we remember that, we can keep going, and we can keep going with a strange sort of joy as we walk with him in hardship, as we taste the sufferings that he himself tasted, as he uses those things to make us look more like him. And as we do that, we can, we can go through hard things with a strange sort of joy as we see his kingdom grow and as we become more what he wants us to be. And as other people see our joy in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hard times, they long for the hope that we have. And some of those folks leave the kingdom of darkness and come into the light of God's kingdom and his kingdom grows. May this church be a place that God uses to do just that. Let's pray and ask him to do that in our midst. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders. Help us to remember these things when we face difficult times. Lord, just forgive us that we elevate our own comfort and convenience over the advancement of your kingdom. For that is exactly what we do when we ask you to end suffering now. We want to be comfortable at the expense of those that you long to draw to yourself. God, forgive us. Make us a people who are ready to face suffering with a strange sort of joy because we face it with you and because you are enough for us, because you are sufficient. Please use us in that way for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.